0: Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info.
1: Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. It's Wednesday, April 14th. Thanks for being with us for today's show. Um. You know, it it strikes me that it's difficult again, and we approach today's show with, I think, somewhat heavy hearts as we once again are confronting or continuing to confront issues of race in the United States. Uh, The Derek Chauvin trial is nearing an end, and uh, many of us who've watched it closely have seen repeatedly the horrific video of Derek Chauvin. Uh, kneeling on the neck of George Floyd, whether the jury finds him uh, not guilty or uh, guilty of uh, killing uh, George Floyd um, remains to be seen, but the video is terrifically difficult uh, to watch. Uh, At the same time, on Sunday, uh, the death yet of another uh, African-American man in the Minneapolis area, Dante Wright, 20 years old, Uh, killed by a police officer with almost three decades of experience on the force, who um, we're told says that she thought she was reaching for her taser and instead fired one shot into the 20-year-old's chest. And um, one of the things that is so painful is yesterday to hear his mother, uh, uh, Dante Wright's mother, talking about the fact that he was on a cell call with her At the time, as the incident was unfolding, he called her to get insurance information about the car to give to the officer. The line went dead, and a few minutes later, she was called back by a woman at the scene, tearfully saying that her son had been shot. We know if we go back to the George Floyd killing, that it was the beginning of a spring and summer of nationwide protests marches on the streets of cities like atlanta and around the country to poli- uh, pr- uh, protest police brutality racial injustice and um so we continue in april of 2021 to deal with this difficult painful uh, part of our lives as americans and that's what we're going to talk about today on political rewind um we're joined by a terrific panel for this conversation It's Wednesday. My partner on the show is political reporter from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Greg Bluestein. Greg, thank you so much for being with us today.
2: Good morning. Thanks for having me, as always, every Wednesday.
1: Mayor Hardy Davis of Augusta is with us as well. Mayor Davis, we're always grateful when you make time in your busy schedule to be with us for the show. So thanks for joining us.
3: Thanks so much, Bill, for having us. I'm looking forward to the conversation.
1: Tiffany Williams-Roberts is the Community Engagement and Movement Building Council for the Southern Center for Human Rights. You've been a guest on the show on several occasions, Tiffany, and we always welcome your participation in shows about racial justice. So thank you, too, for joining us. Thank you
0: for having me, Bill. I'm happy to be here.
1: And Leo Smith is back with us. Excuse me. Leo Smith is a Republican strategist. He's also the founder and head of the Engaged Futures uh, group, um, Leo, this is a good subject, a good day for you to be on the show as well. So thank you.
4: Thank you, Bill, for having me again. looking forward to the conversation.
1: Um, Greg, let let me just kick this off by saying that it's it's chilling, it's ironic. It is uh, pick whatever negative word you want to use that the people of Minneapolis and the country are confronting another police death of a young black man uh, the same time the Derek Chauvin case is getting set to wrap up and go to a jury. Um, it, it, Greg, the feeling, it, these, these incidents, even if this were accidental, and the president has already called for a federal investigation so we don't know, but these incidents just keep coming at us and um, it's hard to digest them and understand what's happening here.
2: Yeah, I think chilling is is the apt word, and um, we're learning more details about, about what happened, including that the officer is actually training um, a, a newer officer who was hired um, on proper police procedures. And of course, as you kind of alluded to, the authorities said um, this could be a, a, a case of weapon confusion. Um, the New York Times did a review um, of 15 cases in the last 20 years where there was apparent weapon confusion and found that there very rarely are are any officers charged when there is this type of incident? But of course, there is a full investigation to see whether or not um, that that is the case here in uh, in Minnesota.
1: May, Mayor Davis, um, as people have looked at this incident, there have been stories uh, reported on the very um, striking difference between the shape and color of a taser. Tasers are often bright yellow. they the handle of the taser. The uh, is is uh, much much different in in feel um than than uh, the handgun itself and and so the we we're not going to try to judge what the officer Kim Potter uh, actually did and nevertheless i think we have to go back to the question that the investigation will explore is why was any weapon of any sort drawn to begin
3: with i, I couldn't agree with some more bill uh at the same time i think it's important for me to Acknowledge that, one, I'm a black man, and we find ourselves uh, having this conversation again. Uh, I'm also the father of a 19-year-old black man, and to find ourselves talking about a 20-year-old just a few years, uh, a few months older than my own son, uh, it's painful. Uh, and we can't lose sight of the fact that these are the realities of where we are, uh, and these are not partisan issues, or at least they shouldn't be. These is the issues of humanity. And uh, I know the difference between a taser and a uh, firearm, uh, having used both. And so uh, not only how we use them, uh, but more importantly, what happens when you use them. Uh, That training is something that's embedded in uh, law enforcement officers uh, and the use of each of those devices. And so uh, while I'm not part of the investigation, I do hope that uh, it's uh, a very thorough investigation as they lean into what happened.
1: Uh, mayor Davis, w- w- let me continue with you for just a moment, if I may, please. Um, you, you are obviously troubled, as you just told us, about this shooting day. You are also the mayor of a city uh, and, and essentially oversee a police department that has to deal with uh, the community in Augusta, many black people in the community of Augusta, every single day. And so it it strikes me that you're one of the people whose presence on the show today is especially important because you have to balance law enforcement needs against how the police force in a community like Augusta deals with difficult situations with minority people. I'm on air. Leo Smith's on air. Go ahead, Mayor.
3: Uh, We do. We have the complexities of having a sheriff's agency here. He's a constitutional officer. We work very closely with our sheriff. Uh, But in a community that's almost 60 percent African-American, we're dealing with the concerns, the frustrations, the fears, the pain, and the challenges of these ongoing issues every single day. Uh, And again, I, 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 I predicate that upon the fact that I am a father. I am a black man. And so these are not conversations that are lost on the reality of where we are, let alone the complexities of that. And so when we're talking about just public policy, one of the things that I've said unequivocally to my counsel is that one, we are not defunding the police because that's nothing more than a flashpoint conversation. But what we have to do is move beyond this notion and stage of what historically has been the gladiator cop. Uh, We find ourselves in a place in America where we don't need the gladiator. We need someone who's trained, who's adept, who understands community relations, who understands, quite frankly, the communities upon which they are policing. And so, uh, you know, here in Georgia, we've got this legislation around not allowing communities. You know, my former colleagues under the Gold Dome, they don't understand our local budgets. And so at the same time, we have to bring balance to those conversations that – Uh, We believe in law enforcement. We believe in backing the blue, but I also believe that black lives matter, and we've got to do more than just have these as rallying points and, and, and conversations, but understand that we've got to reframe and shape how we go beyond the gladiator cop to someone who understands that when I conduct the traffic stop, I'm not pulling out a weapon just because I conducted the traffic stop.
1: Yeah. Um, Tiffany, uh, first of all, Mayor Davis, of course, is referring, and we're going to talk about this in a little while more specifically, but Mayor Davis is referring the fact that the legislature passed a bill that would uh, prevent uh, local cities and counties from decreasing their police budgets by more than 5%, um, which seems like a punitive measure and and a political response to Black Lives Matter. But, Tiffany, I, you're listening uh, to the beginnings of this conversation, and and I, I, so I would welcome your Just as you're listening to how things are unfolding and to the events around us right now.
0: Sure. So when I when I think about um, what happened with the Brooklyn Center Police Department um, as the chosen trial was proceeding, um, I'm reminded that in 2020, that police department was held out as a model for reform. And the reason they were held out as a model for reform was because they had uh, put together a, pub, a public police sort of partnership, really aiming to serve their immigrant community. And what bubbled to the top for me is that the reason that um, we we at Southern Center for Human Rights make decriminalizing race and poverty our mission. It's because we know that the criminalization of black folks and poor folks, especially, is really ingrained in um, the psyche of many of our citizens, but also our public servants. And so there is no partnership. There is no task force. There is no council. And there is no individual policy change that can shift the culture that is so pervasive in so many law enforcement um, offices. That, say, that says, we will escort uh, armed, angry white folks into the, the nation's capital and out of the nation's capital and keep them out of harm's way. We will uh, arrest without the use of force someone who just murdered nine people in a church or eight people in two salons. They will make it to the car and to the jail safely. And before they're booked in, there will be a bail fund um, with donations coming primarily from white supremacists to get them out. I'm reminded that when Blue Lives Matter was uh, first spiked as a hashtag, it was in the response to the killing of Trayvon Martin and the trial of George Zimmerman. And George Zimmerman is not a law enforcement officer. So what that means is that the the public perceives the violent control, social control over Black people as an issue, whether or not the person doing the controlling is actually law enforcement, that because we've been uh, led to believe that certain folks are more um, dangerous than others, that Black people are more dangerous than others, we know that when we look at police data, and some people say, well, the reason that A disproportionate number of Black people are killed by police is because a disproportionate number of Black people commit crimes. But there are studies from the University of Kentucky and from Princeton that say um, mental illness aside, neighborhood crime rate aside, and other factors aside, the single um, most uh, determining factor in determining whether someone will be killed by a police officer is whether they are Black. And we have to confront what that means from a cultural perspective. And we can't pretend, pretend to think that policy changes will alleviate this problem in our country, and we will continue to see this unrest.
1: Leo, well,
4: let me unmute myself this time. And <laughs> thank you, <laughs> Tiffany, for for that. And, and uh, Mayor Davis, like you, I share in having a brown-skinned son that I I, I sometimes worry about. Where, how he will he. Survive in this kind of environment. The bodies of evidence are, you know, they're obvious. The data that Tiffany shares is, is irrefutable. And we have to have a multi pronged approach to this and, and understand the problem in a, in, in, a, in a deep way. I remember back in 2016, the governor deal, um, you know, he, uh, Sam Olinth and I held a, a little a, a conference with some Richmond County sheriffs and some other folks about this issue um, back in College Park. And one of the things that came up was police pay. Um, And I know that it seems counterintuitive, but we have to consider things like what quality and how much accountability are we engendering with low police pay? Governor Dill chose, as uh, Mayor Davis is considering, to increase the pay so that we increase the quality of recruitment, that we increase budgets for training, and that we can get into the obvious that we need to not only train in desensitization and people being able to de-escalate, sorry, um, but we also need training on things like, uh, you know, Galvanic skin response as it relates to collecting data on how police respond to men of color. Um, that kind of uh, uh, technology exists, but we can't defund the police if we expect them to perform better. And we also have to consider unions and whether or not they are protecting low standards and deadly performance.
1: Um, Mayor Davis, let me come to you uh, again. Um, the attention has been focused in the last couple of days, <clears throat> excuse me again, as the mayor of Brooklyn Center has been doing almost nonstop uh, interviews and news conferences with the media on the fact that he has said that he doesn't know of any officer on the Manhattan Center Police Force who actually lives in Manhattan Center. And there have been questions raised, and, I, and this, I, I would say a corollary to this could be that the mayor of Atlanta, Keisha Lance Bottoms, uh, very recently said she thinks there need to be incentives to get Atlanta uh, police officers to be living in the city as well. Um, how important, as we continue to try to figure out how police respond, especially to black and brown communities, could it be... To uh, it insisted that that officers be part of the community that they police.
3: Well, I think it's important, and those are long standing conversations. They're not new. I think uh, right. uh, Leo was spot on in terms of you know having police respond around you know training associated with color and things like that. Uh, having worked very closely with Governor Deal on criminal justice reform uh, when I was in the legislature, he certainly was a tremendous thought leader around that, and continues to be to this day. What I will tell you is that in local communities, you've had housing policies that are predicated around public safety uh, employees uh, providing them with incentives to live in the communities of which they serve in. Uh, those things continue to be on the books and are made available. Uh, we even do some of that here in Augusta, Georgia. I think that's important, uh, but these longstanding issues go beyond where you live. It's about the people you serve. And so when you, Again, I back the blue uh, unequivocally, so many of my friends are law enforcement. But at the same time, what's vitally important is that I support people who can drive in their communities who look like me, who wanna be able to get home safe just because I went to the corner store or I went to pick up a snack at Zaxby's or wherever. And so housing is important. Uh, Training is going to be equally important, particularly around new standards. Uh, I go back to some of the conversations uh, during the height of the George Floyd issues, and that's eight can't wait policies that law enforcement agencies can adopt, you know, banning holes and strangleholds, are requiring de-escalation uh, officers, and that's what Leo's talking about. Officers have to communicate with people, moving beyond the gladiator to someone who has, uh, one, access themselves to mental health resources, but at the same time, having those resources available when they're engaging members of the public. Uh, Require warnings before shooting. I think about, I believe it was the gentleman, uh, Scott, down in uh, Charleston, in the Charleston area, where he was fleeing and was shot multiple times uh, for you know a busted tail light. These things are egregious, and we have to uh, have a multi-pronged approach in terms of how we address them, but it has to happen at the federal, state, and local levels. And we've got to take partisanship, politics out of it from the standpoint of, you know, it's kind of like supporting defense, but not supporting public services. You have to do both in order to have an equitable and an inclusive society. And so this is the time where the scales of moderation and and, and justice have to weigh heavily. And we don't see that, again, housing is a part of it, but you got to know uh, how to deal with people. And, and training is vital to that. Pay is important. Uh, we increased our pay in Richmond County. Uh, when the legislature decided they were going to pay all state police officers 50000 And so that put a tremendous strain on local governments. Uh, we've done as much as we can to get as close to that as possible. But it's not just how much you get paid. It's about the decency of human life and making sure that I protect and serve and provide for the health and welfare, even of those that I might uh, encounter uh, in the public space.
2: Greg? yeah I mean policing experts that, that we've all talked to um, echo what Mayor Davis says that this is a, a comprehensive um, a, a analysis, a comprehensive look that goes beyond um, it goes into a, deep into a culture um, of policing. But I think one of the the key things that we'll be watching too is that as much as we want to take partisan politics out of out of this investigation, um, certainly, and we can talk about this, but certainly um, when we saw here in Georgia, the the movement for social justice be politicized, and I don't think the Senator former Senator Leffler's uh, campaign will dispute this. But when, when their campaign really started taking off against um, former Congressman Doug Collins was when um, the, her opposition to the Black Lives Matter movement was politicized, and she'd go. It became part of her campaign stump speech, talking about her her role at the WNBA as a co-owner of the franchise, opposing the league's embrace of the black lives matter movement so um, I, I think you'll you'll start seeing this even gear up even more I think heading towards 2022
1: uh, Tiffany let me ask you whether there is in terms of the chauvin trial wh- uh, th- there's been a lot of uh, analysis of the witnesses that the prosecution called many of whom were uh, police officers in the Minneapolis police department themselves including the police chief, and, and a parade of witnesses, men and women in blue, said unequivocally that uh, Chauvin uh, violated policy uh, by putting his neck on uh, his knee on, on, on George Floyd's neck. Is, is there any hopeful sign in the fact that that thin blue line has been broken in that specific case?
0: Well, you know, I, um, I think it's important to raise that because um, these officers are testifying for the prosecution and saying uh, that Chauvin uh, violated office policy, then we need to seriously consider the weight that we put on new policies when we are not also discussing cultural shifts. And to the extent that painting Chauvin as an outlier um, help to stabilize the department and stabilize the community, it's helpful, in fact, for police to have that testimony. So, um, you know, Southern Center, we helped to found a coalition called Just Georgia. It was a, after the killing of Ahmaud Aubrey, and our objective is to address state sanctioned violence at every level um, when, it, when it is um, hardened, when those lines are hardened at the ballot box or in policy spaces or in communities. Um, And one thing that we say is we have to look at the ways that we um, perpetuate any of these systems that end up harming Black folks. And so I think that, um, yes, it's important that they, because when you come to court, you're actually just supposed to tell the truth, right? And so if it is true that he violated policy in doing that, then that should absolutely be their testimony. And any shock about them testifying truthfully means that we, again, need to think about what we believe about the culture of policing. And I don't know if anyone noticed, but they flew a thin blue line flag outside of the Brooklyn Center Police Department just hours after the uprisings began. And the, and the demonstrations around the Chauvin around the trial have been indigenous people dancing, have been um, black folks singing, have been prayer circles, healing circles. And this spark, right? The response to police violence is protest. And the response to that response is more police violence. And so at Dutch Georgia, we say we don't look at these criminal trials as the end-all, be-all. They are not the litmus test for where movement is. The, The litmus test is have these systems changed in a meaningful way that materially changes the lives of marginalized people to make them safer. And so I don't think that that is happening. I don't think that anything is crumbling. But, yes, they should tell the truth when they show up to court.
3: You know, absolutely. I think they should tell the truth when they show up the court. And one of the things that's vitally important for every one of us is that uh, when you don't hear me, we need you to hear us. That's why we protest. And I think that often gets lost where you've got singular voices that have tried to be resonant in the conversation uh, to not only bring to bear good public policy, but when these triggers happen that result in the death of individuals. Uh, and we see it over and over and over at that point. And this is the spirit of and the heart of things that we refer to as the civil rights movement. And now you've got the challenges of voting. You've got the challenges of police brutality uh, and the deaths of individuals, our vigilanteism, all of these things that are happening. And what we, what we don't really talk about is the issue of equal justice under the law. You know, we can talk about just this notion of killing, but, you know, to Tiffany's points and the great work that they're doing at SCHR, you've got to talk about equal justice under the law. And so uh, when you have people of color who come into the courtroom or who are dealing with these issues, you know, we're, we're smack dab in the middle of the Derek Chauvin trial. Uh, and, and the country is waiting. The country is waiting on what a potential verdict will be and we need to be prepared for that. We need to be prepared in communities all across this nation, not just in not just in Minneapolis, Minnesota, but even the outline communities need to be prepared. Uh, and leaders, mayors and other elected officials who are on the front lines of this need to be prepared to not only speak truth to power, but be prepared to try to bring some sense of calm to their communities, regardless of what the verdict is, uh, and we hope it's certainly one that speaks to what justice should be, uh, because we've heard so much about the improper use of force uh, in this instance that resulted in the death of George Floyd.
1: Okay, I'm going to really stick, stick my neck out here, Leo. I've got to get to a break in a minute, but I, I'm going I'm to say something that could be controversial, but I want you to weigh in on it, and I'll ask everybody. I'll start with you, Leo, before the break, and then we'll continue <laughs> after the break. It's hard for a lot of us who uh, remember the final the, the, uh, verdict in the O.J. Simpson trial uh, uh, being uh, revealed in court. Uh, many of us remember what it was like in, uh, in our workplaces when that trial uh, ended, when the verdict was handed out. And we remember the stark racial division between uh, the white people in a given workplace and the black people in a given workplace and how they responded to the O.J. verdict. Okay, I'm wondering if, in fact, Hardy Davis says we need to be prepared for what happens in the aftermath of the Chauvin verdict. But I'm not, I think the times have changed, Leo. I don't think we're like sure there is a certain number of white people who, you know, white, white more extreme uh, 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 right-wingers who might uh, be offended if he's convicted or whatever. I, I think we will all, as a people, accept this verdict— Especially if he's found guilty, I don't know what's going to happen if he's found not guilty.
4: Well, you know, thank you, Bill. I I don't think that um, that was that shocking of a statement, Bill, because that I think that the evidence is there. People are starting to see how this is an intersectional thing and how it's impacting um, many lives. And you know, speaking to what uh, Mayor Davis was saying when. People don't, and I've said it on your show before, when people don't listen to the soft poetry, the soft intellectual um, poetry of Langston Hughes, then you're encouraging the harsh, violent um, angst of gangster rap. And, And then when we wonder why people are raging in the streets because we're not looking at data and being smart. And we have to really examine our own complicity in that as citizens. If we don't attack this thing from a data point of view, where if we want better community policing, that means citizens must understand the role of their city councils with policing, the role of the mayor with policing, the role of funding, our tax dollars, where we want those tax dollars together. We have to actually ask ourselves, this is not just in some people's words, state or government sanction killing. Sometimes this is also negligence on on behalf of us citizens, as we cry out, we have to be more engaged, even financially
1: i got to get to our first break of the show. We'll be back with uh, more of this conversation in a minute.
4: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon.
1: Augusta Mayor Hardy Davis, Tiffany Williams Roberts of the Southern Center for Human Rights, Leo Smith, and Greg Bluestein of the AJC uh, join us. Um, Any of you, as we move forward, are welcome to weigh in on my suggestion that it may be that we are more united across racial lines, and will be as we watch the outcome of the Chauvin trial. Please do, but... Because you may disagree with me uh, uh, strongly. But, Greg, let me go back to something you said about the partisanship uh, that, that uh, is injected into this issue. And, of course, it comes into play, uh, and Hardy Davis referred to it earlier, in talking about the fact that the legislature has said to local communities, no, no, you cannot decrease your police budget more than 5%. We prevent. We will stop you from doing that. Um and uh, even as local communities, defund the police is a, is a term that has been rejected now by many, many activists as being um, uh, the wrong message to send. But diverting resources from the police department to mental health agencies or the like uh, still remains a very popular idea, but the legislature is cautioning uh, cities, you can't do it.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, the term defund the police took off in the Republican world as, as a sort of a threat. And you're right. M- more of the conversation now is about diverting resources to community policing, mental health, social services, and other things. Um, but in Georgia, uh, especially, um, Republicans seized on um, that phrase, defund the police. And there were two local governments, Atlanta and athens clark that b- basically just proposed. There was just talk about... Um, cutting their police budgets, and in response, um, the General Assembly has approved a bill that would that would prohibit local governments from substantially decreasing funding for law enforcement uh, by more than five percent one year or cumulatively cumulatively across five years. This it's being um, sponsored by a likely contender for for a U.S. House seat, Houston Gaines, a Republican um, from Athens, Clark County, and again, we're hearing um, from critics local officials, Democrats, um, advocate groups saying this is a solution in need of a, of a problem. There's no reason to be doing this and that it, that it ties the hands of local officials um, who want local control over how they spend their dollars.
1: Mayor Davis, you're one of those local officials.
3: Yeah, I, I am. And, and Greg, thank you so much for that. Uh, I, I want to go back to a premise. Uh, just several years ago, uh, uh, the current administration said we're going to increase law enforcement uh, of state law enforcement, troopers, rangers, et cetera. We're going to increase that salaries to 50,000 or more. Well, the cities, 539 cities, municipalities, 159 counties said, Whoa, we don't have the budgets to support that. While all of that's going on, you've got the George Floyd, Omar, Aubrey, Brownick Tale, and all these things happening. And now you come back in the legislature and say, oh, well, by the way, we're gonna you know, impair your ability to direct your funding and budgets to law enforcement. That's a problem. Uh, we are the boots on the ground today and we will be tomorrow. We're better suited in terms of making those decisions. And nobody is saying, get rid of law enforcement. We all want to enjoy. It doesn't matter whether I live in uh, the hood on the south side or the east side or the west side. What matters is every single person wants to live in a safe community and we want to enjoy the benefits of equal access to law enforcement, regardless of where we live. And so to talk about this notion of, you know, restricting how we use those dollars, we want to pay. Uh, In Richmond County, you know, we came as close to uh, the 50,000 as we could in the previous budget. You insert the global pandemic into that of where it has lost revenue and It becomes a tremendous problem uh, even in the midst of this conversation. So, uh, again, I think it was off base. Uh, It was heavy-handed. But that's what's happening so often right now uh, in uh, the legislature where, you know, we know best of how local government should function and operate. So it's heavy-handedness around public policy, whether it's voting, whether it's law enforcement, and it's just out of bounds.
1: Uh, Tiffany and Leo, I want to broaden the lens on uh, police just police reform on racial justice in policing a bit, if I may. Um, the U.S. House has now twice passed a bill that would establish basic standards for police conduct. Um, it's it's a starting point. I don't think anyone would say it's a comprehensive uh, measure, but it does, for instance, uh, prevent certain kinds of restraints that police have used that have led to the deaths of minority uh, uh individuals and and it's been bottled up twice now in the senate and again this turns into a partisan issue does um does your organization uh think this measure is significant and needs to be uh, uh, uh passed into law
0: um so uh Bill, I don't know that Southern Center has taken a position on this legislation, but I can tell you uh, the times when I've served on councils and committees related to the use of force, our position has been, if we do not reduce the number of contacts any given law enforcement officer or a law enforcement office has with communities, we will continue to see state sanctioned violence. Training is used when the officers want to use it. We've seen this, right? We've seen this live and in living color that it's not about whether they know not to choke people. It's about how they perceive the humanity of the folk they're encountering and whether they believe they are due patience and compassion. This is an example of this is Atlanta has what's called the Tactical Traffic Crime Reduction Unit. Mm -hmm. It is nothing but stop and frisk on wheels. They use the same um, arguments to promote the successes of this unit by saying that they go beyond the stop and they are recovering firearms in an open carry state, right? So it's eight officers and more than I think 2,300 arrests for eight officers in less than two months. And so what what I said on the Youth of Force Advisory Council was we have got to figure out what we are funding we have got to disincentivize unnecessary contact with police officers. Uh, we have got to eliminate the performance evaluation processes, like what Atlanta has, where you reward officers when they come to a scene and arrest someone, punish them when they don't. And if we, and that has to be controlled on the local level. So federal dollars should be withheld to departments who who, who abuse citizens. And we've got to get very serious.
1: Tiffany, we've just lost your voice for some reason. Sam will try to figure out what's going on with that. In the meantime, uh, Leo, your thought, I mean, the Senate continues to block this measure. Uh, it, it strikes me that this could be a bipartisan issue if people in Washington were willing to work across party lines.
4: Yeah, as a Republican, instead of saying Black Lives Matter, I would be saying training matters. And I would be addressing the training issue arguing the George Floyd Act as a need for federal funding to help mayors like Mayor Hardy-Davis, giving them the latitude to decide how to use that funding. But Congress should be attaching that to police reform bills. Maryland, in their uh, over, overriding the veto of their, their uh, Republican governor, decided that they were going to put loan assistance in for their police officers for their continued education and training. So so they are addressing this need for training. And I think that's a good message. Instead of being anti-Black Lives Matter movement, they should be pro-police officer responsibility and training so that we can back the blue because we believe the blue is better prepared.
1: Um, all right. Let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way. We'll continue this conversation. But I'd also like to turn a page and talk a bit about where do we stand right now beyond police matters in terms of just the, the uh, uh, growing uh, desire for, for f- addressing racial injustice in this country. And we'll do that with a panel after these messages. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Mayor Hardy Davis of Augusta, uh, Leo Smith, is uh, with us Tiffany Williams Roberts from the Southern Center for Human Rights and political reporter Greg, Greg Bluestein, Bluestein, who's here with us on every Wednesday uh, show. Greg, uh, let me give you a chance to weigh in on this. The uh, the measure that the House has now passed twice, which would set some basic standards across the country, doesn't seem to be picking up any momentum. I certainly don't see anything that would suggest that the state legislature is going to try to take up a bill that might establish statewide uh, standards for uh, police interacting with uh, 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 individuals.
2: Yeah, I know. And and that's an important point, because if you look back to some of the some of the successes, I would say, well, least criminal justice advocates would say uh, that came from the tragedies of of last year, uh, a hate crimes measure was adopted. Overwhelmingly in the Georgia Legislature and signed into law this year, a citizens' arrest overhaul uh, will soon be signed into law by Governor Kemp. There's only one nay vote in the entire Georgia legisla- legislature against that. Um, but you have to remember too that the the advocates I know everyone on this panel knows this but the advocates who were calling for changes that was just sort of that was the start um, that was that was sort of the ground level of some of the changes they wanted that includes uh, continuing the the reforms that former Governor Nathan Deal Made put at the center of his of his legislative agenda, reducing mandatory minimums, repealing stand your ground laws, uh, uh, ending capital punishment um, in Georgia, and and, and, a, and a series of other changes um, that Georgia has just started the debate on under the gold dome. Let's
1: let's look at the broader question of racial justice. And Tiffany, let me start with you, if I may, and and I'm going to ask you a very broad, open ended question. Um, Since uh, the demonstrations of last spring and last summer here in Georgia, across the country, um, since the pandemic has exposed more than ever the disparities in terms of of health care in the black and brown communities and the white community, um, many other issues like that, are are you seeing just any progress at all in terms of our finding a way uh, to to overcome uh, broadly the racial injustices, the discrimination of the past, are we? Do you see any front on which we've made progress?
0: Sure, I think you know you always have to have hope, right, in order to move forward. And one. One positive is that we're seeing things like non-law enforcement responses to harm picking up in all over the country. Atlanta, because of the work of community organizers, has adopted a non-law enforcement response to harm, which says armed armed cops don't have to show up every time there's a crisis. And we really have to think about who are we as a nation when we believe that when someone has a problem, the only response is someone with a gun, a taser, and a baton. And so I think that... Because communities are digging in on these issues and learning to talk about them in a nuanced way. At Southern Center, we do not – we don't attack defund the police. We don't attack grassroots organizers because we believe they are closest to the harm. And so I think the silver lining in this is the understanding uh, that communities have to build power. And what elected officials have to do, policymakers have to do, is you spend a lot of time in rooms with police officers and policymakers. How much time are you spending with the community members who are being harmed? How much time are you spending identifying a success stories? What are you funding? If we don't bat an eye when we stop funding our schools and we don't bat an eye when we start stop funding mental health resources, why is it? It's not white supremacy. Why is it that we clam up when we talk about diverting resources from police departments? And so I think for me, When I'm asked this question, is that I am seeing a groundswell of political education and learning and organizing on the grassroots level, which is really the only way that sustained change will happen. And if we embrace Dr. King here in this city, we know that he embraced um, the ideology that all change is local, He went to Memphis to work with the sanitation workers, not to tell them what to do. And so we have got to embrace that service leadership, that servant leadership, if we want to continue to move forward.
1: Uh, Mayor Davis, my question was a very broad one, uh, but there's a lot of work to do in very specific areas when it comes to discrimination, health care, housing, schools. Employment. I mean, this is a huge undertaking, and Tiffany has suggested that maybe we're starting to find some hope as grassroots activists begin to pay attention. Where, where, what do you see as you as you look at all of those areas that need attention?
3: I, I agree. I think uh, Tiffany's comments are spot on. Uh, the grinding nature of this work uh, has brought us to this moment, uh, and the work while it yet appears formidable, it's not uh, time for us to stop Uh, when you go back to the civil rights movement, to even now uh, the the flashpoint issues, when you think about freedom from segregation, from redlining, police brutality, discrimination, uh, freedom, finally, from all effects of racial hatred, which has long uh, challenged and distorted our nation's democratic ideals, we have to lean in. And now is that penultimate moment of where we have to do it collectively. We cannot retreat to our spheres of influence or the places of comfort, whether we be white, black, Asian, Hispanic, Latino, or otherwise. We have to have what we've historically referred to as that incredible melting pot of people coming together and lending their voices beyond the challenges of what we all face uh, in different sectors of our life whether it was the challenges of what took place in Atlanta uh, with the eight lives uh, and then weeks later, uh, I think further out west, uh, those issues are front and center, and we've got to roll up our sleeves and work on them together. Uh, we cannot be disparate in our approach. We've got to be together in that while we may not agree on all of the issues or at least the approach, I oftentimes resign to this. Uh, I have friends who drive Chevrolet trucks. I drive a Ford. But as long as we arrive at the same location, it's a good thing because we've gotten there safely, soundly, and securely that we can now work together uh, for the good of our communities.
1: Okay, so here's a really question for you, Leo. Um, We know that our political leaders right now, divided in as poisonous and toxic, a partisan atmosphere as imaginable, are not coming together to work on these issues. But I'm hearing uh, Tiffany, and really Mayor Davis uh, seconding this, that maybe uh, at uh, at the grassroots level, uh, people are beginning to understand they have to work together together to try to find a way, movement toward racial justice. Yes?
4: Yeah, you know, and you know that I've got an effort underway called After We Vote. And, and one of the things that I'm finding is that, yeah, there's hope because the underlying issues, um, one issue is how the sausage of politics is made and whether or not our elected officials are working for us. I think that more people are realizing that they're not working for us as much as they're working to control resources and to protect themselves. And then there were once nascent conversations on things like white identity and capitalism and reimagining it and making it more moral, and why isn't Wall Street objecting to some of these killings, and things like underlying causes and justice issues like reparations. These things are now starting to be talked about in policy ways. They're starting to be proposed in the house hoppers, et cetera, and legislation is now being discussed in ways that never work. And then the last thing that I'm really encouraged by is the way Silicon Valley – I have a conversation going on today that with Silicon Valley tech executives about innovations to gun ownership, things like using AI for policing – to determine whether or not you know the Department of Defense can do research and R- R&D on looking at how to judge the level of threat and arm weapons accordingly. These kinds of conversations were not happening before, and now the free market is starting to respond, and I think that's encouraging.
1: Greg Bluestein, uh, Leo Smith mentions reparations. There's an important moment happening in the House Judiciary U.S. House Judiciary uh, Committee. This morning the Judiciary Committee is expected to mark up and hold a vote today on legislation that will create a commission to develop proposals and what they're calling a national apology to help repair the lasting effects of slavery this is something that's been talked about for literally decades it was introduced first by representative John Conyers back in 1989 and now a judiciary, the Judiciary Committee will take it up and perhaps if they vote for it, move it on to the whole House. Now, we know reparations is controversial, uh, but this is a, a, a fascinating uh, development to watch unfold.
2: Yeah, it's one of the first congressional votes, formal votes on, on, on this idea. Critics say that it's just kicking down the road even further and yielding even you know months, years more of study, um, but still, it, if, if this passes, it could set up a commission that would give serious look at how the nation uh, continues to grapple with a legacy of slavery.
1: Well, Tiffany, Greg Bluestein just took the wind out of my sails, because I was feeling hopeful that at least this is going to get through the Judiciary Committee. What's your take on, on the fact that this is happening today?
0: Well, um we talked about reparations for a long time. I think that it's unfortunate, but I think the America's original sin of chattel slavery has been one that it has not reckoned with in a way that suggests that there should be meaningful material um, approach to, to rectifying things. And so it will be a process, but again, embracing folks on the ground who have been doing this for decades is really, really important.
1: Um, Mayor Davis, I'm going to give you the final words as we come close to the end of our show. Is this a positive development?
3: I think it's a distraction. Uh, I think there's a point in time where that conversation needs to be had. Right now, Congress needs to focus on the John Lewis Voting Rights Act uh, and get that done. Mm -hmm. Uh, They need to focus on the George Floyd Act and get that done. Uh, Those things are front and center because that's what we're dealing with and focused with right now. Uh, we can come back and have a much broader conversation around the issues of reparations uh, and a quote national apology. Uh, apologies without corresponding action are just that—a conversation—and I want action. Once
1: again, a smarter panel than I am sets me straight <laughs> about at least one of the pieces of the conversation we're having today. Mayor Harry Hardy Davis. Tiffany Williams, Roberts, Leo Smith and Greg Bluestein. it's been a pleasure to have you all talk with us on the show today. Thank you so much. Uh, We're back again uh, tomorrow with another edition of Political Rewind. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nigat. Take care. Stay healthy. Wear your mask above your nose, please. And if you haven't got it yet, go get your vaccine. Take care, everybody.